Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, the Northeast Football App and Engagement Editor here at Chronicle Live. And we've reached episode 9 of our 30 plus episode walk through the history of Newcastle United. Last week we covered 1920 to 1924, the World War I recovery and the club's first visit to the brand spanking new Empire Stadium in Wembley. Today, for episode 9, we're covering a glorious 1926-27 season. We get to talk about Newcastle winning an actual top-flight title once again, though sadly this will be the last time it happens during the series, but we do get to focus fittingly for episode 9 on one of the greatest strikers to ever pull on the black and white stripes. I'm joined, of course, by Newcastle United official historian Paul Joanne, and today we have a special guest in Harry Pearson. Harry's a journalist and author specialising in sport. He's a regular contributor to the excellent When Saturday Comes magazine, among other publications. And Harry's a Middlesbrough fan, so thanks for putting regional allegiances aside and joining us on our Newcastle History Podcast, Harry. Oh, absolute pleasure to be here. Well, I was going to say to be here, but I'm actually just sat at home. So, well, you know, yeah. it's a nice house. <laughs> We're here in spirit, and uh, it's great, great to have you along. Can can you um, give us a bit of a background on yourself, Harry, before we start as a writer and as a, a northeast football fan in general? Talk about some of your work. I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of your book, The Far Corner, especially, and have that, and maybe even the recent sequel on their shelves. Um, yeah, well, I'd like a lot of uh, sports writers of my generation. I started off writing for fanzines, um, still still working for When Saturday Comes. Started off about 1987, something like that, writing for them. Um, I wrote The Far Corner, that was 25 years ago. Moved back, so I was living in London and I moved back to the North East about 1990. Um, so I wrote that then and then I, I wrote about, oh, I don't work for The Guardian for about 16 years, writing sport for them, going to World Cups and uh, European Championships and stuff like that and generally having a, a jolly time of it. Um, and then I wrote, the, the, just as you mentioned, I wrote The Father Corner, the imaginatively <laughs> the titled sequel <laughs> to, uh, to The Far Corner. Um, last year was it going to come out last year? I think um, so. It's yeah. lost track of time during the COVID. Um, yeah, that came out last year. So that was like 25 years after the first book. And in between, between I've written about cricket and cycling and country shows and all kinds of stuff. So uh, yeah, so that's about it. I mean, I, what I'd say is that a friend of mine um, who's now a professional journalist. When I first met him, he, he, a few years after, as he said, I always wanted to become. He said I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I thought that writers must be sort of special intellectual sort of people and then i met you <laughs> so anyway so i'll take that as a compliment so that you know that's what i always say to people if they're thinking about starting writing you know just get a piece of paper and a, and a, and a, and a pen that's the way to go i've got no qualifications to either write or talk about anything <laughs> I <should ask. laughs> amazing amazing well let's see how this goes then this is uh, it's great to have you with us at paul uh, coming to you we'll pick up where we left off in episode eight newcastle just won their second fa cup how did they get on in the season that preceded that? Well, the Cup winners in 1924-1925 uh, had another decent season uh, as one of the country's sides that were up there. But and, but they continued to be just outside the, the, the title chase and finished in sixth place. Then two major factors made sure United moved from that fringe of the league hunt uh, to title winners. Uh, there was a big change in the rules. The offside law was, was altered and Newcastle made a record signing. Yes, yes, the offside law changed in 1925. So prior to this, I'll, I'll try and get this right, you two can keep me right. A player was considered offside unless three players of the opposing side were in front of them, including the goalkeeper. And this changed in 1925 so that a player was considered offside unless two players of the opposing team were in front of them, including the goalkeeper. Well, that sounds right. I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> no, I think that sounds good. We're not going to get the, the, the salt and pepper pots out. Yeah. 
I think earlier than that, in the old Cambridge rules, I think they had to have four players, which, which, you know, between them, which seems like more or less impos impossible. Even the, even the, even the three-player rule, you know, that, that was repealed, you can't imagine nowadays mm. that anyone would have scored at all with those yeah. rules. But, and, and impossible to officiate, officiating that as well must have been a, a real headache. But, Paul, Newcastle's defenders mastered it incredibly well, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. United's... Um two defenders because there was really only two defenders in the side then um the two fullbacks um uh, because the, the center half and the halfbacks were mainly midfield players uh, but before and after world war one uh, they perfected an offside trap bill mccracken then billy hampson and frank hudspeth uh, were the key leaders of that and, and by the years of the early 20s it was so good that the football association decided to change the rules to overcome uh, the tactic, which had really been copied by many clubs and led to negative football. You know, there wasn't a lot of goals scored. Uh, and in the summer of 1925, the rules were changed, which in turn meant uh, it was much easier for strikers to score. And this resulted in um, uh, another change tactically. The centre-half, who was, as I said, a, a midfielder before, he became a defender and had a three-defensive uh, scenario, two full-backs and a centre-half. Um, and United's Charlie Spencer, uh, later an England player, uh, he became one of the first centre-half stoppers. Yeah, amazing. And Harry, it speaks volumes really, doesn't it, how good Newcastle's defenders must have been at, at this, that they basically invented a new position on the pitch and effected a change in the law. Well, yeah, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, McCracken, I think, was the, the, the name that always sort of sticks in my memory. I mean, maybe because it's such a good name, but I, I think he just he just literally he just literally used to take a step forward. I think Paul will, will correct me on this. It was literally the, just a step, wasn't it, that he took and he played players on side. But the, the change in the rule also changed, as well as changing the positions on the field, it changed the way that football was played quite a lot. Because with the two, with the old three-player rule, there was a much greater emphasis on running with the ball because that was the only way to break through the offside. But after it, players like passed the ball much more and putting the ball into what we'd now think of as in the channels became more of a thing. So inside forwards who could pass the ball became much more important after that, I think. But you know, Paul said about you know, the increase in the number of goals, I think it went up by about 40% the following season. And we got, I'm going to bring a Middlesbrough element in now, because of mm -hmm. course, in the, the following, the same season that Huey, we're going to come to Huey Gallagher, but George Cancel at Middlesbrough was one of the, the people who learned how to break the offside trap, one of the first quick centre forwards, and he scored 59 goals that season. Uh, the following season, Dixie Dean scored 60. So nearly all the nearly all the goal scoring records crop up in that little period before the defences had got used to the new rules and when tackers were, were exploiting it. That's certainly right and, and Middlesbrough, to, to give Middlesbrough some credit, they got promoted and became a top Division 1 side at the same time as Newcastle won that title so so they had some terrific players. It's a glory and, uh, turn for the North East. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Sunderland weren't too bad either, to be honest, all three clubs had a, had a good period in the 1920s and just going back to Bill McCracken, he was the key factor in, in the offside trap. Although he didn't invent it, there was uh, players before him in the 1900s that actually started it off. The two Notts County fullbacks started it off, really. But it was Newcastle who really perfected it and, and made sure that the rules had to be changed. And that explains your Twitter handle, Harry, Camsell59. That, that's it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It is the true story of Middlesbrough, of course, that he, he held the record for one season. 
Dixie Deans. The only man who ever got more was the next season. So, you know, yeah. everyone's heard oh. of Dixie Deans, George Cancel. Nobody's heard of him. Ah, you're, you're still shining the light for him. It's good, it's good yeah. to see. So, Paul, 1925-26, new season, new offside rule, and for Christmas, Newcastle got a new striker, and it all would eventually turn out to be the perfect combination, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, any any side who, that's, that first season after the change, who fielded a top goal scorer, uh, benefited as clubs took a, a considerable time to to get used to the new new tactics. United hit six against Notts County and seven against Aston Villa. Uh, yet they also conceded seven uh, to Blackburn, so there was a goal fest in many games in the first half of the season. And Newcastle also made a bold move to replace the ageing Neil Harris, who had done very well uh, in the years straight after the Great War. In December, they signed Scotland's new sensation, uh, Huey Gallagher. He was an Airdrie centre forward. Uh, they paid six and a half thousand for him, and he was five foot five, uh, only five foot five tall, a bundle of genius, though. Uh, and he was an immediate hit at St James's Park. He scored 15 goals in his first nine games and 25 in just 22 matches for the Magpies as the season um, uh, went on to its close. And that was just the start of something really very special from Wee Huey, as he was nicknamed. Yeah, yeah, Huey Gallagher. I mean, it's fitting that an opportunity to talk about him should occur, as I said, during episode nine, one of the finest number nines to ever play for Newcastle United. But were they wearing numbers by this stage, Paul? Or? No, they weren't. They it weren't, OK. The forward hero, uh, number nines, didn't come in until the last season before the Second yeah. World War. OK, I thought that might be the case, but uh, he, he is was a striker, of course, and, and we've got two experts on the wee man here. Paul, we'll start with you. You wrote Huey's authorised biography in the 80s, the Huey Gallagher story, and met his sons, Huey Jr. and Matthew Gallagher. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, um, you know, Huey was uh, Huey Gallagher was Newcastle's biggest hero up to that point when they signed him, and he is still a legend almost a hundred years later. So that tells you an awful lot about the the player, and he is one of the country's greatest ever centre forwards of all time. And I've been fascinated by his amazing life story uh, so much so, as you say, I, I, I got in touch with the family back in nineteen eighty nine now, which seems an awful long time ago. Uh, and and we uh, collaborated, uh, Huey Jr. and myself, on the family's biography of, of Huey. And I met um, not only Huey, uh, who still lives on Tyneside, uh, but later on I met Matty as well, who was uh, his other son, uh, who now lives in South Africa. And they were both lovely guys, uh, and they told me so much about the inside story of the Gallagher, Gallagher uh, life. And, uh, you know, both of them, had a resemblance to Huey, Matty especially, because he was only about five foot five, five foot six himself. Mm. And he could be the double of Huey himself. And and actually both of the sons were on Newcastle United's books for a period in the late fifties, early sixties in, in the junior side. They never actually quite made it, but that means that all three Gallagher's were, were wearing the black and white at some point. Fantastic. So Huey, you know, came from a rough and tough background, the streets of Bells Hill near Glasgow. And he starred at Airdrie when that club were a very top side. They were rivals to Celtic and Rangers in Scotland. They won the Scottish Cup. And uh, he scored an awful lot of goals in, in Scotland and was playing for the national side. Uh, and as I say, it was quite a, a new sensation. And Newcastle grabbed him, made sure he came to Tyneside. And for a five-foot-five 
centre forward, he was quite a handful. You know, he could strike a ball sweetly with either foot, go past men with ease. He could head the ball even though he was only small. He could tackle ferociously and also <laughs> frequently lost his temper. So mm. he was he was quite a character and he's you just gotta look at the, the man's career total, four hundred and sixty three senior goals and six hundred and twenty four senior games. And that's a, a formidable record. Uh, and he only stands alongside his only other one man in real football's history, and that's Dixie Dean, who who can match that in 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 England and in Scotland. And for Newcastle United, he went on to score 143 goals in only 174 matches over five seasons. So um, he was quite a quite a, a, a school scoop for Newcastle United at the time. Yeah, frightening numbers, frankly, to be honest. And. Uh... I must mention, I'm a bit of a football shirt collector. I've got a couple of match-worn shirts, modern-day match-worn shirts in my collection. But, Paul, you have what's known in the business as a Holy Grail shirt, a match-worn Huey Gallagher jersey that uh, the family kindly gifted you when you did the biography. Yes, I've got, I've got uh, up on my wall, I've got uh, a Huey's, one of the Huey's Scotland shirts. Um, it's just a, a plain blue top with a white collar. It hasn't got a badge on it or a number on the back, but it obviously comes from a, a good provenance, and it's up there, all nicely framed with a with a um, copy of the cover of the book I did, and it's next to Alan Shearer's number nine shirt as well on the wall. So uh, I've got two lovely things on the wall that I see every morning. <laughs> Unbelievable! And Harry, coming to you, you wrote a really interesting piece this year for issue nineteen of the Scottish Football Magazine Nutmeg. What is it about Huey's story that drew you in? Um, well, when I when I moved back to the northeast of Northumberland, it was about 1990, and I used to take the dog for a walk along the river, along the Tyne, fittingly, you know. And I, I met a, used to meet a couple of old guys who were retired miners in their 80s, and we talk about football. And Huey Gallagher's name would come up. They they sort of remembered him. I think they'd been to, been taken to St James's as boys to see him play. But as as one of them said you know all you could all they ever saw was the ball when it went in the air because there was there was such a crowd around them they couldn't actually see the pitch <laughs> at all and yet you know this and everyone spoke of him people would talk about Huey Gallagher with this kind of awe and wonder and then you would realize that the people you were talking to actually weren't quite old enough to have remembered him but it was a bit like there's a Joseph Heller the author of Catch-22 said a thing he said some events in history are so fantastic that even those who were not there can remember them vividly. And I think that describes Huey Gallagher perfectly. In 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 Arthur Appleton's great book about Northeast football, Hotbed of Soccer, you know, it was written in the early 60s. He, he spoke to obviously Newcastle players who'd played alongside Huey Gallagher, and he said, without, you know, with every one of them spoke of him with with awe. Now, there's not many when you when you get hard bitten professional sports people, they're very rarely affected like that by someone to play with or against and one of the players that I would think of who I did see play in a different sport who people speak about in a similar way is Gary Sobers the West Indies cricketer where you talk to play, players are just it was like it was a super you know when people who played with or against Gary Sobers speak about his abilities as if they were supernatural you know it's mm. not like they weren't of this world and I think Huey Gallagher was a similar sort of player people just couldn't believe what he could do and i think also because he was so small as well i know when newcastle signed him i think when he arrived a lot of the newcastle players looked at him and thought what 
we've paid all this money for this, for this, you know, but it, it, and I think even when he came out on the pitch for his debut, I think probably a lot of fans thought, looked at him and thought, really? Well, you know, what's he going to do? And of course, you know, straight away he was brilliant. And I think that's what, that's one of the things that draws you to him. Also, you know, there's the, there's the sort of tragedy of his life as well and his story, I think, too, which in a way, you know, mirrors a lot of, Play, you know, a few players of when I was growing up, George Best, you might say, also sadly Paul Gascoigne as well. There's a sort of element of that, and in a way, Gallagher set a kind of he established a kind of almost like a template of a particular type of Scottish player. You know, hugely talented, f- fierce, um, like you know, probably liked to drink, got in trouble off the field, got in trouble on the field. A bit Jim Baxter, all those kind of players that remember Jimmy Johnson. You know, so he did sort of he he was sort of fitted into that mold but as i say it's the it's the overarching story of his life i think that, that and the tragedy of his life you know as we'll talk about because one of the things that i think with gallagher that, that all his a lot of his problems or nearly all his problems stem from a very simple fact and that was that he fell in love with a woman who wasn't his wife you know and that's right. a, that's a kind of extraordinary thing as well it's a quite a romantic story you know i think uh, as and paul paul will know a lot more about this than me obviously having talked to the family but that's a kind of extraordinary thing about it as well so it has all elements i mean when I, someone who read the article i wrote in nutmeg said they should make a film of that you know and it would make a great film wouldn't it you know yeah. if anyone's out there with the finance <laughs> yeah you know. true yeah, yeah it's a real kind of hollywood know. story as well because it, it is because also he was a very kind of flashy guy i mean very very mm. well dressed you know mm. a bit of a kind of gangster look like bill shankley had it as well they kind of copied i thought that he copied james cagney but in fact james cagney came afterwards so maybe james cagney copied huey gallagher <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah fantastic so paul 1926 27 this was huey's season can you set the scene for us and explain how he became so influential in the run to the title well, that, that season, his first full season with Newcastle, um, uh, they had to really challenge Huddersfield Town, who were the team of the period. They, they won the title three years in a row uh, during that era. But Newcastle now had Gallagher, and he transformed the Magpies uh, to steal the title away from the Yorkshire club. Uh, Gallagher was appointed captain for the start of the season uh, and he led from the front with his goals. He scored 39 in that season, League and Cup goals, uh, and that was a record for Newcastle United until um, much later, until Andy Cole passed the 40 mark uh, more recently. And United took over at the top of the table after the new year, um, but really it wasn't before the, and, and before the league silverware was secured. Uh, they did have another big game. They, they made a return visit to that jinxed ground mm. at Crystal Palace, then home to the famous amateurs, uh, the Corinthians. Uh, the two clubs met in the FA Cup, uh, and the amateurs gave Gallagher and Newcastle an almighty shock for the first sort of hour of the match. Uh, mm. They took the lead in front of a 50,000 gate, uh, and with a radio audience, which was the very first live broadcast by the BBC of an FA Cup match, United made a late rally and eventually won 3-1, but not until you know they were very nearly kicked out uh, of the cup at that ground in South London once more. Mm. So that once they got over that, the rivals in the title race uh, were Huddersfield, uh, and remarkably it was Sunderland. And they were, the three clubs were neck and neck for a lot of the season, um, but United had Gallagher, as I said, and he in particular made sure the Magpies won both key uh, contests which took place at St James's Park uh, as the season came to a conclusion. 
Finland were beaten 1-0 in front of a new record gate at St James's Park. 67,067 were there. Uh, and then another 60,000 crowds saw the Terriers lose by another one goal. And Newcastle picked up the, the point they needed with a draw in London at West Ham. And they were league champions. And as you said right at the beginning of the programme, uh, it was, it's been the last time we've uh, won that particular title. Although we got very close to it in 1996. Yes, we did. It's um, getting on for 100 years now as well. And uh, it's amazing to, to learn that Sunderland were snapping at the heels of, of Newcastle as well. It must have been a very stressful time to be a Newcastle fan, getting that title win over the line. Of course, Huey was the focal point of the side during that, that winning season, but it wasn't a one-man show, obviously. Can you just quickly talk us through some of the other men who were involved in helping the, the league to Newcastle? Yeah, well, it was uh, they had a five-man forward line back then, and all five men were very influential players in, in attack. Apart from Huey at, at centre-forward, uh, there was Tom MacDonald, uh, a Scotsman who had been signed a few years earlier, and he played right through the 20s. Stan Seymour, we've discussed before, great on the wing. Uh, another influential uh, winger Tommy Irwin, who actually played for Middlesbrough and, and later played for Sunderland as well, um, and Bob Mackay, uh, an inside forward from Scotland. Um, all of them were pretty slight, and, and none of them were taller than five foot seven. So the whole forward line were uh, rather small, but they scored an awful lot of goals and were a handful for every team. Um, and strangely, after the after the title win, there was no championship uh, winning parade as you would recognize now there's no fanfare in newcastle uh, uh, you know, the papers are, are, are there's just nothing about that at all the only bit of news that i could pick up was that the the team were presented with medals at one of the local theaters amazing maybe they thought this was going to happen you know every couple of years <laughs> yeah well i think i think back then the fa cup was mm. clearly more special than winning the title now it's the other way around and as we've already seen if we win if we won the FA Cup there would be a huge parade in the city but that just didn't happen with the league title mm, interesting and and Huey did have three more seasons uh, with Newcastle after the league win the, his goals seemed to continue but the rest of the team weren't really able to match his level by the looks of it uh, the following three seasons were a huge disappointment and um, the champions misfired despite Gallagher continuing to score lots of goals. In 27-8 and 28-9, they finished mid-table, uh, while the following campaign, 1929-30, uh, they even flirted with relegation. Newcastle's directors tried to stop the rot by making uh, one or two quality signings. There was another record uh, arrival in England centre-half, Jack Hill. Uh, who came from Burnley. He was a County Durham man and a very respected player. He cost £8,100, while a veteran schemer arrived from the Rangers, Scottish international Andy Cunningham. Now, he was well into his 30s, um, very, very experienced and uh, uh, won lots of titles and cups and, and caps in Scotland. And he was to be appointed Newcastle's first manager in January 1930. Uh, although the club's directors, of course, retained much control for another 20 years. So there was lots of changes, nothing seemed to go quite right, yet Gallagher still scored lots of goals and Newcastle really couldn't capitalise on his brilliance up front. Yeah, shame. And, and Harry, 
I wanted to ask you about a, a sliding doors moment um, that that happened to Newcastle and Huey Gallagher involving Huey's Scottish international teammate Alex James, and there was a bit of a missed opportunity there for for Newcastle to maybe sign Alex midway through the 1927-28 season. That, that might have appeased Huey. He was uh, went on to be a, a really solid player for Arsenal, I believe, Alex James, and it, it could have maybe been different if that had happened. Yeah, well, he and uh, Gallagher and Alex James had grown up together in Bell's Hill. Um, you know, played together at Wraith, I think at Wraith Rovers. James was a was a kind of scheming midfield player, often now by Arsenal fans compared to maybe Dennis Bergkamp. But I think probably reading about him more, perhaps like Andrea Perlo, he was certainly one of the greatest Scottish mm-hmm. players of, of his of his generation. Um, Gallagher had been suspended uh, from playing for Newcastle after an incident in which he allegedly kicked a referee into a bath, I think, um, uh, which again sort of slightly summarises his, his, some of his behaviour. And he was he went back to Scotland to train in Bells Hill for the game. He played for Scotland in the famous Wembley Wizards game when they beat England 5-1 at Wembley. And he played in that team with Alex James. And James had moved to Preston North End in the second division and he was very, very unhappy there. He was only getting paid... The, uh, the maximum wage was £8, and he, that was the maximum wage. But there were ways that t- the teams tended to get around that by giving players jobs in sports shops and things like that. But Preston wouldn't do that for James. They also occasionally would refuse to let him play for Scotland, so he's very unhappy. And Gallagher, Gallagher said, well, he would, he would try and get him a move to Newcastle. And he went in, allegedly went in to see the Newcastle directors and laid this out before them. And, and they, they said they wouldn't sign James because he was too small. Well, he was actually he was actually a couple of inches taller than Huey Gallagher, so perhaps Gallagher maybe got the message then that the, the writing was on the wall for him. Of course, um, Alex James left Preston eventually a couple of years later, went to Arsenal, won four league titles and two FA Cups with Arsenal. He actually missed the, the game when Newcastle won the FA Cup, beating Arsenal in, in the 30s. James actually wasn't playing, he was injured. Um, but you know, so he was he was really credited with turning that Arsenal team, Chapman's Arsenal team, into one of the most formidable forces in English football during that time. So if he'd come to Newcastle, who knows? We can we can yeah, only shrug it, and wonder. It, what do you think, it, Paul? It, well, I think it was a huge, a huge opportunity missed because James, as you say, uh, became a, a, a an influential player, one of the real greats in the nineteen thirties, and uh, you know, alongside. Huey, I'm sure the pair of them would have maybe turned Newcastle's 1927 championship side into something like Huddersfield had been before and Arsenal were going to be in the, in the 30s you know, well, to dominate football. But Scotland, Scotland won every game that they played together, and they scored. They scored. They played six games together for Scotland. They won every one of them. They scored twelve goals between them in six mm. games. So you, you would think, yeah, together they were really formidable. Plus they had this, you know, this great bond of friendship as well. So yeah, I think it, I think it would have made a huge difference, definitely. Mm, shame, real shame, Paul. There was a standout fixture in the. 1927-28 season that we should mention disappointing title defence but there were uh, the, the the game against Aston Villa at home tell us about that one yeah well during March uh, in that uh, season um, it was still rather uh, uh, wintry at that point and there was a uh, we played Aston Villa in a league game uh, and there was a snowstorm uh, United were actually 4-0 up uh, but the game went from end to end and, and it eventually uh, ended up 7-5 to, to Newcastle with Villa coming back in the last uh, 15 
uh, minutes uh, to score, you know, repeat, repeatedly score, and uh, it was quite a remarkable game. Uh, Gallagher was suspended for that game, uh, and he, he had quite a few suspensions, but his deputy, <laughs> a young uh, County Durham lad called Jonathan Wil Wilkinson, uh, Monty Wilkinson, he was nicknamed, uh, scored a hat-trick uh, as Gallagher's deputy, uh, and he, incidentally, is uh, related to Steve Harper. And uh, it, it's amazing how uh, footballing families just go on and on uh, when you get into the detail of things. Yeah, brilliant. Fair play. Fair play. Colin and Paul, how did it end for Huey as a player at Newcastle? Well, by the end of season 1929-30, the new manager, uh, Andy Cunningham, as well as many of the directors, um, had fallen out of love with Huey Gallagher, despite all his goals. The fans, of course, hadn't. They, they still adored him. But United decided to cash in and accepted a record £10,000 fee from Chelsea. Now, Gallagher didn't want to leave. He, he still uh, liked living on Tyneside. He loved the area. He had settled down with a, uh, a new love in his life. Uh, but back then, clubs had total control of players. They had no uh, say in what they could do or what they couldn't do. Um, and Gallagher had no choice. He had to move to London. Newcastle supporters were in uproar. They didn't want to leave. He didn't want. They didn't want him to leave at all. And of course, as it turned out, quite remarkably, United faced Chelsea and Huey Gallagher for the opening game or, or the opening home fixture of the 1930-31 season, the following campaign. And United supporters just flocked to St James's Park to give him a monumental welcome. Reports note that almost 30,000 were locked out of St James's Park on that uh, uh, afternoon. Uh, in a record crowd of 68, 386 packed into the ground. Uh, it's still a record. It's doubtful that will be beaten in, in certainly our lifetimes anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and United won 1-0, uh, but Gallagher went on to have a, a, a good, if not up and down and controversial career with Chelsea in London. Yeah, um, it speaks volumes that the record crowd of all time was to see a player who wasn't playing for Newcastle at the time. It's, it's just brilliant. Harry, can you talk us through then the, the third act, if you like, of Huey's life and career? He, he did return to Tyneside, so he must have liked it in the northeast, but it finished in tragic circumstances, didn't it? Well, well, he really did, yeah. I mean, he, he went to Chelsea, he gradually sort of fell down the leagues, went to Grimsby. As I say, what had happened was he'd married very young in Scotland to a woman called Annie. They had, they had a son, actually, Jackie Gallagher, who played for Celtic, was a very, very good player. May still be alive, I, I think, in his 90s. No, no he's not. He's not, he's isn't he? Oh, right. Three years ago, yeah. Right, yeah. right, because he, you know, he was a very good... But, but then he fell in love with this lady, Hannah, who was the son of a, the daughter of a, a Newcastle publican. And in those days, it was very difficult to get divorced, you know, and, and he fought this massive legal battle to get divorced and I think spent huge amounts of money on that, really. So he gradually sort of moved down the leagues. I say, and talking about, you know, when he came back to play for Chelsea at Newcastle, he signed eventually late on in his career for Gateshead. And I do know people who saw him play at Gateshead. When he, his first, his debut for Gateshead at Redhuth Park was 20,000 at Redhuth Park, which... <laughs> You know, when you see a picture, I've never read Hugh Park have been long demolished, but uh, when you see a picture of it to pack 20,000 people in there, it must have been practically <laughs> bursting at the scenes, you know. Um, yeah. And he played there and he was actually pretty successful with Gates. He'd scored, a, you know, scored a fair few goals for them. Then, of course, the Second World War started and that, that ended football for him. He worked for a while as a, as a journalist, but I think he, he was he was um, banned from the St. James's Park press box because he was a bit too outspoken, I think. Um, and then he did various jobs labouring and things like that. Um, in 1951, his wife Hannah died. He had three sons, I think. 
you know, in those days for a man to bring up kids on his own, it wasn't like now where people would accept that. It was quite a difficult thing. People felt that men shouldn't be doing that kind of thing, but he held he held his family together, um, doing any kind of job that he could. And then there was an incident in about 57, I think, was with one of his sons when he came home, there was an argument. The boy ran out into the street and went round to a neighbor's house. There's a big dispute over what exactly went on. But what did happen was certainly that the NSPCC got involved and Gallagher was charged with with physically abusing his children. Um, I, I think something that was that was untrue. I, th I think you know none of it, I don't think any of his I think his children say that that wasn't true. Um, but of course, he faced a court case over over custody of the children, and it seemed to just completely knock the spark out of him. He had a lot of friends and he had a lot of supporters, people who were quite willing to go and testify on his behalf. But it just finished him off. And it, and and one day, the day before the court case. He walked up to the railway line at Gateshead and, and threw himself in front of a train. You know, and that's, it's an absolute tragedy. And I wonder sometimes, you know, talking 10 or 15 years ago to professional footballers, now footballers are much more willing to talk about the difficulty of retirement. But I did talk to players then, and quite a few said, after I retired, I felt like killing myself. You know, it was a very mm. difficult thing to go from the level of adulation that you have as a 25-year-old man. And especially with Gallagher, who had no savings left in the days of the maximum wage and all of this. They didn't have much money left. To constantly be reminded by people of how great you were when you were 25, it must it must really take it out of you, I think. So, so yeah, so that was the tragic end of, of Huey Gallagher, you know, and, and, and really, all, and a ter you know, terrible, awful end, you know, and, and something that I think now, again, another thing that draws you to the stories, you could see how that relates to players now, you know, obviously had you know, there have been players now who've had mental health issues after leaving the game and while playing the game. So I think that's another sort of interesting aspect of the story. Mm. Paul, anything to, to add to that? It's, it really is an unbelievable story and, and, and you were able to write it and, and spend time in, in the company of his sons. Um, well, I think the, the incident that, that caused all the trouble was blown out of all proportion, to be honest. You know, mm. the young Matty had you know started to be uh, as far as I can remember he was a bit cheeky to his dad in the in the house and uh, that happens all the time and Huey lost his temper a little bit uh, threw something at him didn't actually hit him I don't think and it just blew out of all proportion and uh, you know, Huey Gallagher uh, just couldn't cope with all the pressure and the court and facing the court and, and uh, you know that was a very sad end I always remember the the journal's headline uh, after the, his sad death, you know, it, it said uh, Huey of the Magic Peter's dead. His whole life story is just uh, one fascinating subject, and, and uh, it'll go on and on. Um, he's one of football's great legends. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, to end it on a bit of a positive, I think the biggest compliment we can give him is to quote Club Secretary Frank Watt, the man who signed him, the man who we've spoken a lot about in this podcast so far, Frank. Classed Gallagher as the greatest player the game has ever known, which was a big statement to make in an era where they didn't really make those kind of statements. Mm. And uh, we've got a, a picture here that I'm going to flash up on the screen for people watching on our video on our website or on uh, YouTube. And it's a picture of Huey. Uh, he's leading the team out onto the pitch at Highbury to play Arsenal. And he looks like he means business. I'd love to get your reaction uh, to this to this picture. Harry, I'll start with you. It's a smashing shot, isn't it? 
It's absolutely great, isn't it? And it's like you say, I mean, he's got he's got his chin tucked down there like a like. I mean, he did he did work out as a boxer as well, and you can see the way his chin's tucked in there. He's ready to go, isn't he? Love the policeman as well on the right, who looks like Oliver Hardy's uh, slimmer brother, doesn't he? <laughs> Paul, it's great, isn't it? It's uh, it, there's a guy in the in the right hand side who's pointing as if, wow, there's Huey. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a, a shot, and uh, it actually shows. Uh, Newcastle's famous granddad shirt, which uh, mm -hmm. was so popular uh, much later in 1994, five and six, and that's uh, what Huey's wearing in the one the, the title in that in that shirt. You know, the the guy. I would, if there's one player I, I would have loved to have seen wearing a black and white uh, shirt, it's Huey Gallagher because he must have been some player when you consider he's only five foot five tall. So, uh, and to score all those goals and to challenge six foot two, six foot three defenders. And um, he must have been a, 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 just a great sight to watch. Yeah. And after listening to you both talk about Huey, I think I'd agree with you, Paul. I'd, I'd absolutely love to see. I would have loved to have seen Huey play live. I'd love for there to be some footage of him. I don't think much exists. But uh, yeah, yeah. Is, if you go on YouTube, you can see New, Newcastle's 1926-27 side um, and they go along every player in a line, and you see Huey just moving a little bit, um, but uh, there's very, very little action at all. But that that clip of the of the whole side is great to watch because you do see every player, including Gallagher, just make a, a few live movements. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And Paul, just to finish it, we have had a, a listener question in. Um, someone's contacted us, Nick Craig. He said. Um, this, this podcast is brilliant thank you both for doing this looking forward to the next episode so thanks Nick for, for the message Nick has asked you Paul he's interested to find out when crowds started to develop and did they have to pay to get in and if so how much what would the equivalent be today right well that's a nice hard question <laughs> but uh, yes I've got all the facts and figures you know the really Newcastle started charging in the days of East End you know when in the 1880s likely uh, when East End moved to uh, a fenced-off ground, if you could call it uh, a ground back in those days. Uh, they moved to Dalton Street in Biker in 1884, and that was really the first fenced-off uh, ground that they had, and they would have been able to charge spectators coming in from that period uh, onwards. You know, they weren't, the crowds weren't very big back then, starting off 1,000, 2,000 by the 1890s. The average was... Uh, just below 10,000. You know, as an example, 1920s, the average was 32,000. But by then, big games had 50,000, 60,000 at, at the grounds. And in terms of admission, right in the 1890s, it was six old pennies for a, a normal uh, admission. Uh, and the season ticket was 10 and six months for 1892-93. Now, I've done a couple of little comparisons. Back in 1894, that sixpence using a, a web com, uh, converter site that sixpence in 1894 uh, converted to 2021 would be about two pounds 10p um, <laughs> if you move and, and compare that two pound 10p to admission at st james's park you can get a ticket for 25 pounds or 30 pounds so they're the comparison and looking at 1920 the season ticket for 1920 was three pounds five shillings, which is three pound twenty-five in new money. Um, and the same sort of comparison, taking it 1920 to 19 uh, to 2021, that converts to about 95 pounds. 
Um, and the season ticket, at St James's Park, it can get a good seat for between 450 and 500 pounds. Mm. So that gives you a little uh, comparison. But fundamentally, the start of charging money as soon as they could, which is in the sort of early years of the 1880s. Yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. It's 95 quid to watch Huey Gallagher win the league. It's uh, worth every penny, I think. Yeah. Wow. So, Harry, Paul, we'll leave it there for this episode. It was a really great chat, that. Newcastle winning the league again in, in Huey Gallagher. One of the best, I think, ever to play at St James's Park. Thanks, Paul. And uh, thanks, Harry, for joining us for this one. For more on Huey, there's no better place to start than Paul's authorised biography, The Huey Gallagher Story. Uh, Harry's book, The Far Corner, is also an absolute must-read, and its recent sequel as well, The Farther Corner, equally fantastic. So do check those out, and follow Harry as well on Twitter. He is, as we discussed, at Camsell59. Harry, are you working on anything at the minute we should look out for? Is that Huey Gallagher screenplay being started yet? Uh, not, not quite yet. No, no. I'm, do, I'm writing another cricket book at the moment, but it's uh, all about Yorkshire, so you won't be interested. You won't be bothered about that. <laughs> you never know. Probably not this podcast, but uh, good to hear that you. Good to hear that you're still uh, still on with it, and then we we will look forward to anything you put out. To be honest, it's, uh, it's all well, good thank, stuff. Thanks very um, much. Yeah, great. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next week to chat about Newcastle United again. In this episode 10, we'll cover the famous over-the-line FA Cup final win against Arsenal. So in the meantime, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you use. Follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And keep an eye out for new episodes of Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. These come out every Wednesday. And do stay up to date with Everything Black and White by subscribing to our Newcastle United daily newsletter. It's free. We do a morning news roundup, an evening roundup, and breaking news as and when it happens directly to your, email, to your inbox. The link is in the show notes. Hit that, scroll down to Sport, Newcastle United Updates, tick the box, and you'll be signed up. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicled, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joanneu, and Harry Pearson. <laughs>